It's spring and you want to hike, bike, hit up the farmer's market, but the last thing you want to do on a warm, sunny morning is clean house. That's where Greenland Pro Cleaning comes in. They're eco-friendly, allergy-friendly, and locally owned in Asheville. Listeners of The Overlook get a free upholstery and refrigerator cleaning upgrade with their first booking. Just use the code PODCAST at checkout. Make the most of your time this spring and visit GreenlandProCleaning.com slash overlook. Imagine, you're a classical music composer about to premiere your final symphony. Behind the scenes, your family and a stranger are about to throw everything into disarray. Welcome to A God in the Waters, the latest play by the venerable Asheville writer David Brendan Hopes. Look for a lot of laughs, but also a deeper reflection on the making of art and its impact on the people closest to the genius at work. The Sublime Theater presents A God in the Waters, May 9th through 18th at the BB Theater in downtown Asheville. For tickets and details, go to thesublimetheater.org. I am a maker, a builder, a baker, although sometimes my messes are all that you'll find. I'll tell a story, both true and allegorial. The process is precious, so it takes up all my time. There are far more young people in need of foster homes than there are homes to take them in. This is true all over the country, but it's particularly acute in Buncombe County. More than 100 local youth are now in homes outside the county because there's such a shortage of spaces here. The challenge is even greater when two or more kids from the same family need homes. These siblings are often separated for months at a time or even longer. It's been a challenge for a number of years, but yes, COVID has certainly had an impact because it became more challenging to deal with foster kids just as it did for families to deal with their own children in terms of the kids being home more with not being in school. And so there was a pretty stark drop in the number of families across the country and in North Carolina. This is The Overlook with Matt Pikin, a podcast about the news, arts, issues, and trends of Asheville, North Carolina. This is the first of two episodes looking at a crisis of need around services for young people. Today, it's a look at foster care. Our next episode dives deep into the need for child care. My guests today are Amy Huntsman of Buncombe County Health and Human Services and Whitney Burton of the nonprofit Lutheran Services Carolina. Much of their work focuses on foster care recruitment and training. We'll learn how the pandemic made worse the imbalance of supply and demand for foster care, particularly for older children and sibling groups. They'll also relate their own experiences, rewarding and challenging, as foster hosts and talk about how the community can support foster children and families. I began our conversation by asking about the range of situations that lead to young people entering the foster care system. Amy Huntsman is first to speak. It's a tricky situation um, because lots of folks have problems, but not everyone in their life knows their problems, right? Like they may have a substance use problem, but they're completely functioning to have a job and, you know, no one in their personal life knows. But then one thing could happen where perhaps they get pulled over intoxicated with their kid in the back of the car and it could crack their life wide open. So sometimes people are ready and able for that help and sometimes they're not. I would say it's probably a 50-50 shot by the time they get to us if they're willing to start working on services or not. But honestly, when kids come into foster care, it's generally a giant eye 
eye-opening experience for a family where maybe they've been trying to push off responsibility for something or not really acknowledge a safety issue that's happening in their home. But once someone comes and says, well, your kids can't live here anymore, it's a real eye-opening experience where folks are like, hey, now it's time to get serious. How does it even come to your attention? How does a specific case come to your department's awareness? It comes from people in the community. It comes from school teachers who are concerned because a kid's falling asleep every day in class, or it comes from a doctor who sees some odd bruises on a child when he does a well check appointment. It could come from anywhere, honestly. And what's the age range of kids? You Is it like any minor? Is it anybody from infancy to 18? It is from the day of birth until 21. Actually. Oh, till 21. How many people come through your system in a given year? Last year, we took in 163 new new children into the foster care system. Generally, we keep somewhere between 350 to 400. It kind of depends on a year. And I know that's those are very odd numbers. But I think right now, I checked the numbers this week, and we had 383 uh, youth in foster care. So you'll take in 160 plus in a given year, and then there are maybe 200 existing already in the system. Correct. And so it's almost an even flow. I think last year, we exited about 140 kids out of the foster care system. And some of those went back home to mom and dad. Some of those went to live forever at grandma's house. And some of those got adopted to folks who were fostering them. So that's a big mix of what that looks like. But so for the most part, it's even. We'll take in generally just a few more kids than we send home. Okay. Now, Whitney, tell me where Lutheran Services comes into play here. You're a nonprofit. You have your arms in various realms and needs in this community. Tell me where Lutheran Services comes in when it comes to foster care. Lutheran Services does foster care across North and South Carolina. This program is new to Western North Carolina, and we're what's considered a private agency. And so we do training for foster families in addition to what Amy does. We also do a different kind of training for foster families so that they can take what's called therapeutic level children. And therapeutic level children are just kids whose needs are a little more complex, who have a little bit more on their plate in terms of what they need from a family. And that's where the county would come in more, or that's where your organization that's comes in? That's where we would come in as a private agency. When, it, when there's a little more intensive therapy that's... Correct. So tell me... About on the day-to-day basis, how you two work together. When kids come into the system, they're coming into the county, and then you reach out Amy to Lutheran Services, you reach out to Whitney. How does that work? Correct. We have some families that are licensed with us in Buncombe County, and those are what we call level one families. So they're folks like you and I that maybe don't have a special skill set to work with a child that has heavy behavioral needs or like a really significant medical need. We're just there because we we care and we want to help our community. So we have a lot of folks like that. But sometimes, like Whitney's saying, there are kids that have been so traumatized or have so many issues that the normal person parenting a child just can't handle it in regards to the amount of appointments or the things that might be happening in their home. They don't feel that they're equipped. So Whitney's agency does a great job. And there are other agencies in our community as well that that do that, that train these folks to say, hey, you're going to bring this kid into your home. This kid maybe has night terrors and is up in the middle of the night screaming. Like, this is the skill set you're going to need to be able to deal with this. This is how you're going to be able to calm down this kid. And also, they offer a service, which is great, which is different than us, where they have a 24-hour hotline. If you're having an issue behaviorally, you can call them in the middle of the night if you need to and get the advice to just help stabilize your household. Why are the services different? 
and you're serving the same uh, clientele, the same people, why is there a difference in terms of the level of services and maybe even how you administer those services? So as a nonprofit, we're just able to offer that higher level because we have that focus team. So like Amy was talking about with the 24-hour support, as a nonprofit, we're able to offer a little bit more support to these families than the county can just by virtue of being able to wrap around them a little bit better because this is our only focus. Whereas with the county, and Amy, you can correct me if I'm wrong, you guys also do adult protective services and other... It's a huge scope of services for the community. Right. And so since our focus is just on foster care and just on the kids, it allows us to provide a little bit more wraparound services for the families and a higher level of training for them because we are just narrowed in to the kids instead of having such a huge scope. Mm. Now, Whitney, you reached out to me originally because you were saying that there is a big need for foster families, that there's a wide disparity in terms of the number of kids who are in the system and coming into the system versus families waiting for them. Either of you can speak to this or whoever you think can best speak to this. Is this disparity of the kids who need foster care versus the number of families available. Is this always a challenge or is it particularly more of a challenge now in the era since COVID? It's been a challenge for a number of years, but yes, COVID has certainly had an impact because it became more challenging to deal with foster kids just as it did for families to deal with their own children in terms of the kids being home more with not being in school. And then on top of that, you had this expectation that your caseworkers and your guardian ad litems and all the people involved in foster care were also going to be coming in and out of your home. And so with COVID, that became an issue for a lot of families where they weren't comfortable with that. And so there was a pretty stark drop in the number of families across the country and in North Carolina. Amy, give me a sense of, you talked about the numbers of of people who come into the system and who are in the system. How many foster homes are there currently in your system? In the the system as a whole, I don't know. I can only speak to what we have licensed at the county. And I currently have 85 families that are licensed through the county. And again, those are level one families that are dealing with kids without high medical or high behavioral needs. So 85 out of kind of a need of more than uh, 200, 250 families. Right now, I have 110 children that are living outside of Buncombe County because there is not a foster home that's appropriate for them here in Buncombe County or a mental health bed that's appropriate for them here in Buncombe County. You're getting to a question I had. So when you have more children who need placement than you have places to place them, where do they go? What happens? It's an interesting effect because a lot of uh, smaller counties around us don't have the same problem. They end up sending their children to Buncombe County because we have more resources here, more beds here. What ends up happening for us is our kids end up going to larger cities. So they end up going to Charlotte, Greensboro, Raleigh, places that are out further east that have a larger population and more placements available. So let me get this straight. So you'll have uh, people in Transylvania County or Haywood County, others, when they are over capacity, they routinely or as a matter of course place kids in Buncombe County, you're already over capacity. You can't place all the kids you need to in your system. You're taking them in. How can that even be sustainable? 
it's different and it goes back to having a private agency versus a public agency. At my public agency, the families that I have, the 85 families, we only accept kids from Buncombe County. When we're talking about uh, Lutheran Family Services where Whitney works, it's a private agency. And so they accept clients and referrals from all over the state. So tell me about that, Whitney. So when given the problem as Amy articulated it, is that it's happening in rural areas, it's happening in the larger cities, that there's a shortage of homes ready for these people who need them. And kids are coming in from other counties. Is Lutheran Services taking kids from all over Western North Carolina? So right now, our focus for this particular program is Haywood and Buncombe County in terms of recruiting families. And as an organization, our goal is similar to Amy's in terms of trying to keep these kids local. So trying to keep them in their home counties. However, as I said, we provide services all across North Carolina and South Carolina. So So you're working, you have Lutheran services agencies throughout both states. Correct. So the priority, it seems, is to keep keep people as close to their core family as possible. Correct. How far out are you having to send kids away from their families by sheer necessity? So we have bigger operations in Raleigh and Charlotte. We also work in Hickory and Morganton. So Hickory and Morganton are a little bit in between. So we try to, if we have children that are being placed from Buncombe County that we can't find a home for here, then we would shoot for Hickory or Morganton before we would send them to Raleigh or Charlotte, for example. One question I I have is how long are typical stays or is there no typical stay? Can foster care range from just a couple of weeks to several months or longer? What's the range? The, the state statutes will tell you that kids are to be in foster care for 12 months and then have landed in their permanent plan. That's not how the court systems work, and that's not how the system works. And for a good reason, when we're taking kids into foster care, that's not a, something that we do lightly. That's something that takes a, a judge's decision and a sign-off on, and sometimes even requires law enforcement involved in that situation to make it happen. It's a huge deal. And so it's just as important that if we had to take all the cause and concern to take this child out of the home, that there's just as much cause and concern that goes into putting them back to make sure that they're not going to be in a traumatic situation like this again. So the state suggests that it takes 12 months to find a permanency for a child. I would say in this day and age, it's more like 24 to 36 months to be able to thoroughly say, yes, this child can go back home or, or no, they cannot. And we're going to seek adoption or seek guardianship or a, a separate plan. Are you finding challenges particularly in placing older kids? Is it much easier to place younger kids? And if that's so, what is the striking challenge right now with older kids that you're seeing? So in discussion with Amy, I know that the older populations, which is where we're focused on our program is children 15 and up, is definitely harder to place. Also, sibling groups are harder to place. And our focus with our program being 15 and up, we have what's called an independence coach that works with the family and with the children. So they're helping them with things like job skills and financial literacy and getting back into school so that when they do age out of the system, they're prepared and they're not aging out without any idea how to function as an adult. One of the things that Amy mentioned is that kids can stay in care up to 21 and that provides them with an extra couple of years to really get some experience under their belt as opposed to aging out at 18. I know I wasn't ready for adulthood at 18. So it gives them a couple extra years to really get some of those adult skills under their belt. You mentioned about preparing them for when they get out. What sorts of trainings or coaching 
education goes in on both sides from your agencies once kids are in foster care in terms of preparing them to build some skills so when they leave, they are better prepared to take on school, take on work, lead a life, and what training goes into the families once people are in foster care? What kind of trainings happen on both ends? I can speak for the department. This is not a this is not a new realization that these kids were are having a hard time. It used to be even just six years ago when a child turned eighteen, if they didn't have a place to go, we would say, "Sorry, the government's no longer supporting you." And a lot of these kids are ending up on the streets and in shelters, honestly, or in jail. And those were pretty typical outcomes for these kids. Back in 1995, the federal government realized that this was a problem. They started what they call the Chafee Act, and basically, it's a, a money that the feds fuel into all of these kids from ages 13 to 21 to help them in training. So we're at the county using a lot of that money to help them do things like take driving lessons, buy a car. It could be that we have a partnership with the local state and federal credit union and they come in and do budgeting training with the kids and really teach them what it is not to just be able to make sure that you have $5 in your wallet, but what it means to be able to save money so that you can pay your electric bill at the end of the month. So there's lots of efforts going into that. And I think Goodwill Industries and Youth Villages, there's lots of agencies in this community that are really focused on this group of kids and making sure that they are going to be successful as young adults and not fall into some of those same cycles that maybe their families had prior to them. Is it more about educating and preparing the kids than it is about helping the families provide a better situation for those kids once they come out? It's both. I know for kids in care, it depends on what their goal is. The focus is always reunification. So the focus is always getting these kids back to their families whenever possible. And Amy can speak to this more. The county works with their families to make those changes, to make the homes a safe place for them to return to. If their plan becomes adoption, more often than not, they wind up being adopted by their foster families because that relationship exists already. And so the foster families will have that training in place, will have those resources available to them in terms of, in our case, an independence coach or a caseworker with the county to help provide those details and that information um, and the resources to help the children find a job, to help them with financial literacy and things like that. Yeah, you're getting into a topic that is also at the core of what you're wanting to see is more families uh, come into the system. You both have had experience uh, hosting foster kids. I want you to talk about your experiences, why you both even got in. What was your motivation? What inspired you? Whitney, you, tell me first, how long ago did you get in and, and tell me about the level of, of intake you've had? So for me, it was about 10 years ago. And as Amy mentioned, a lot of these kids wind up on the streets. And for me, that was my introduction was a young man who had wound up on the streets. And through a friend of a friend, I was asked if I could help provide him with housing and help support him. And once I did that, I learned that he was a former foster child. And so I learned a lot about the system from him. And we decided to become licensed foster parents after our experience with him. And then as foster parents, we fostered several teenagers. And so when this program came up and the job opportunity came up for me to be part of this program and really help local teenagers who are experiencing foster care, it was something that I felt really passionate about having fostered several teenagers myself. Were you nervous before you'd ever foster 
hired anybody, you don't know what their full picture is, their full history is. And I can imagine your both of your challenges when you're looking to recruit families is just to I hurdle the stigma, I would imagine, about who these kids are and most people having a certain knee-jerk reaction like, oh, no, I don't want to get involved in something like that. I just imagine without you even getting past the need for families that you're facing this kind of challenge. Am I wrong in that? No, families are absolutely nervous. And I was at first when we started fostering, there were children that came into our home that we knew very little about because we did what's called respite care and full-time care. And with respite care, you often take in emergency cases. And so these are the kids that are coming into the system at eight, nine o'clock at night and have nowhere to go. And so we would get those calls. And at that point, the county knows very little about these children. So there's not a lot that they can share with you about their history until they've been in the system for at least a few days. And so we would often wind up with children that we knew very little about. And it was nerve-wracking at first, but you're provided with the training and the resources, especially with a private agency, to tackle that. And you do have someone that you can call, regardless of what time of night it is, to help de-escalate any issues that come up. Our first placement was a 17-year-old, and the first couple nights were like a honeymoon period. Everything was pretty cool, and then some of her behavior started to show up, and we started to see the trauma that she had been through. And she was definitely challenging, but she was also a lovely child and had a lot of potential. And so you start to see them for who they really are and not just their behaviors. More after this. When you go to an Asheville City soccer club game, you're not just watching soccer. You're welcomed into what players and fans call the South Slope Blues. The South Slope Blues, they're amazing. This is the coach of the women's team, Brooke Bingham. The atmosphere is what makes Asheville City soccer so great. Longtime player Laura Greb. We have the most dedicated fans. We have our South Slope Blues. They post up in the corner of the field every game. They've got their drums, they've got their smoke, they've got their loud voices. You can hear them for miles. Elite men and women players from throughout North Carolina team up in Asheville for a two-month season against other aspiring pros from all over the Southeast. Home games this season begin May 18th at Greenwood Field on the UNC Asheville campus. For details, tickets, and your first steps into the South Slope Blues, visit Asheville City Soccer Club at AshevilleCitySC.com. Amy, tell me more about your initiation into the foster world. What was your life situation like and what inspired you to even become a foster parent? At the time when I decided, I'll say I worked with a young woman who, or she's a young woman now. Wow. When I worked with her, she was in kindergarten. That's I, I'm 46 now. So this is a very different wow. timeline that I'm thinking of. 
But when I worked with her, what I really saw was a little girl who needed a strong adult in her life. And I was really connected to her. And this little girl, when she was in kindergarten, I worked with her for about two years. And I kept having jobs in the community that would keep reconnecting me with her over and over again. And when I was partnered and boot up and had a house here in Asheville, my partner and I decided that, hey, we should be foster parents. And what I did immediately was look for this girl because I knew that she had been bouncing around forever. And it didn't work out for me to find her. But what we did do is end up, we went through a place called Elida Homes and got licensed. And that training is a great training. It's what they provide at Lutheran Family Services. And it's also a version of what we provide at the department. But it really gives you an eye-opening look. And it was different for me because I'd been working with families for a really long time. I was the lady that took the kids from the families. And now I was putting myself in a position where I was going to be receiving those kids to try to give them help and help them get back with their parents. It's just very different. And so we ended up having a placement of two little girls, one who was blinded by an injury from her biological family, and the other one who just had some really severe trauma issues and was failure to thrive, what they say, failure to thrive, like she wasn't getting enough attention or food or things when she was little. So she's a very small and meek child. And we had those kids in our house for about two years or so, and they tried to reunify with the mom. So there was a lot of work there with the counties, lots of court dates, lots of stressful meetings to try to get these kids back with a relative. And at the end of the day, substance abuse was at the core of the issue and they were unable to do it. So we ended up adopting these little girls in our lives. And wow. Yeah. And, and it was, it was a painful moment and I wasn't really sure that I was cut out to do it. And because I had a lot of those fears that foster parents have, my little girl that was failure to thrive, she would have tantrums where she would bang her head against the floor and watching a four-year-old bang her head against the floor incessantly and you have no way of stopping it. That's a pretty heartbreaking thing. And a helpless thing, right? And what do you do with a toddler who you have a hard enough time communicating at the best of times and with something like this and it's not your birth child somebody enters your life in this way how do you deal with that that's what you know the system um is set up to give you a lot of supports as a foster family so what we had was what we had a therapist that came and worked with us in the home and also in an office-based setting to really teach us like hey when she's doing this these are three techniques you can use to make sure that she's not going to hurt herself uh during this process and then it wasn't just that but it was like what's triggering her to go into this and what can we do to divert her before she gets to the space where she feels like she's gonna have a tantrum or she hurts herself this it seems like going Going into foster care is life-changing for all involved. You mentioned, and I'm paraphrasing here, I don't remember the exact words you had, but whether you can do this, you didn't know whether you had the capacity. Is there an ideal foster family, foster parent who is right to step into this role, which clearly is going to pivot somebody's life, no matter in what position they're in their lives? Who's the right person? I I say that everyone is the right person to be a foster parent. I am a true believer that we're a community here in Asheville. Everyone's got their part that they play, whether you're a person that was, you know, working at the post office or you're a person who's working at the grocery store or a teacher. Everyone's got a role to play. And these kids that are hurt in our community and these kids that are suffering in our community are ours. And so everybody, in my mind, needs to step up to help out these children. And I'm a true believer, like all the kids that are coming into foster care, they're very diverse little people. They all have their interesting quirks and they have their um, amazing habits and their talents and their skills. And we want our foster parents that are serving the kids to be just as diverse as those kids. So it doesn't really matter to us if you're gay, straight, trans, poor, wealthy. It does that. that does stuff age make, does age make a difference? So you have to be 21. So in a sense it does, but we have a lot of older folks that are retired in the community that are foster parents, or they might be respite foster parents like Whitney was talking about, where they just do it on occasion to help support a, a child. I was in the uh, big brother program for a long time, both here 
here and in Minneapolis. And I know that's even challenging sometimes. And, and the process they go through to find the right matches, to find personality types. If you have uh, an adult who's active and a kid who's active, that might make a good match. Uh, what kind of work goes into pairing the right situation for both families and kids. So with Lutheran services, we will often do what's called a meet and greet, where the families get to meet with the child, the child gets to meet the families, they get to establish whether or not they feel like it's going to be a good fit. That's obviously not always possible, but if it's a longer term case where, say for example, maybe we have an opening and we're able to bring one of those children that was placed in Raleigh back home, back to Buncombe County, with a new foster family, that's a situation where we'd be able to do a meet and greet and really figure out if it's going to be a good fit. There is an urgency to it as well. Like matching is a great idea and a huge practice to make sure that parents are going to feel comfortable and kids are going to feel successful in the placement. But the reality is right now in the state of North Carolina, there are no places to put these children. When we are doing a search, even for a six-month-old baby, which, you know, everyone that fosters, not everyone, but lots of people come in and they think, oh, we're going to have a baby and it's going to be easier. If you've ever raised a baby, you know that's not necessarily the case by any means. But I can maybe find one home that can take that baby. I can tell you 10 years ago, there would have been 12 homes. I could have picked the perfect area, the one closest to the family, the one closest to the the park that the kids used to. It was a very different world. Now, I'm lucky to find that place in Charlotte. Yeah. Uh, Whitney, you had talked about how COVID changed things and some people didn't want to bring people into the house when there's an active viral uh, strain going around. But are there other factors have other things about our world, about our region, changed to make things more challenging in terms of finding families? I've not been with Lutheran Services for as long as Amy's been with the county, so I've not seen the trends other than from personal experience. When we first began fostering, I feel like one of the biggest issues is that people are just unaware of the situation. People don't understand that there are that many children coming into care and that there is a lack of homes. And so I feel like education is one of the most important things that we can do to let the community know that this is an issue so that people who are willing to offer up a home or are willing to even consider doing it can contact us or the county or another agency to determine whether or not this is a fit for them. Yeah, but you're talking about how people aren't aware. To have that kind of a fall off in terms of what Amy was just saying before, you could just reach out and find a home for a six-month-old child. There are plenty of homes to choose from. Now she's lucky to find one. It seems like there would be more to it than there's just lack of awareness. Part of your role is recruiting. You said recruiting families. What questions are you getting from families now? I would imagine you've only been doing it a year. Maybe you might be able to speak more to this, Amy. What are potential hosts concerned with now that maybe they weren't voicing what are some of the hesitancies now that weren't hesitancies maybe five years ago? I think there's many different things that are contributing to that. Part of it is that the system as a whole was pretty destroyed by COVID. I don't just mean the resources for therapists, people that work what we call intensive in-home services, where they go in and work with biological families and children or foster parents and children. Those people don't really exist anymore. They've moved on to other jobs. And so the same thing, you know, we hear about it a lot in the news about the hospitals and things of that nature. The nurses have moved on to different career paths. The same thing has ha- happened in this helping industry that we're in with social services. A family can come in 
in, maybe expecting that they're going to be able to have uh, more support with visitation transports or with being able to help get their kid to a medical appointment. And what they realize is when they come in to be a foster parent, wait, all those resources that I was hoping I had aren't really there anymore. Wow, that that speaks to a, a huge issue, an underlying issue that's probably not talked about as much, but seems pervasive across industries. And you're saying this has hit foster care as well, that the supportive services that families depended on are just being depleted by people leaving the industry. So you ha- you're wanting to recruit families, but I would imagine one of your challenges is, and one of your edicts might be recruiting people into the profession who are, would be in support of these kids. And one of the things that we've done at Lutheran Services is to reach out locally to churches and religious communities to help fill in those gaps and to help create some of those supports. And we've also reached out to other community organizations, again, to help fill in those gaps. I think one of the other issues is just the economic landscape that we live in today in terms of inflation and in terms of people having lost their jobs and needing to start over in their careers, it's difficult to want to open up your home if you don't feel economically stable. And that's a big thing here in this community. Rent's huge, you know, and a lot of people can barely afford a one-bedroom, two-bedroom house or apartment. And the thing with having a foster child is they do need their own living space. They could possibly share um, a bedroom with your biological child, and I'm certainly willing to open up that conversation to anyone that wants to to, to give that a shot. Uh, But a lot of people just don't even have the space in in, in this town. People that have a big heart for it don't feel that they can financially take care of the situation. You mentioned about biological kids. Is, Is there a preference either way, or is that a non-factor whether a family already has existing, whether it's biological kids or adoptive kids in their home, does one make for a better environment or not for foster kids or is it all over the map? It's all over the map. In some cases, it's really helpful for there to be children in the home already because it creates a sense of family and other systems of support for these kids in terms of having siblings. In some cases, it's better for kids to be in a home that doesn't have that, but it's all over the map. It's really about whether or not you are willing to open up your home and be available to love these kids. Before we get into how can people get involved, anything we haven't talked about situationally, trend-wise, that people should understand about what you're facing, your clients are facing? I would just to go back to talk about uh, for a moment about sibling groups and care. That's a huge deal for us locally. We have lots of sibling groups. I think I counted 25 the other day of kids that have three or more siblings in custody right now. And that is extremely hard when that happens to try to keep those kids together. In fact, virtually it's impossible. Generally, I end up taking a kid. We call them uh, three tops, four tops. I, I don't know where that language comes from. But so if I have a three top, I'm putting them in three different foster homes. Isn't three top, four top, is that tables at a restaurant? Tables at a restaurant. Yeah, so it's three three children's seat at the table. Seats at the table. Yeah, but so what's happening is that I'm putting them in three different foster homes. So you're taking a, a situation where this kid's already traumatized and stressed out, and take them away from their siblings, from their immediate support group. And usually their siblings are their kids that have been rolling through these situations together. And so we're re- removing that support network, and then we're creating a, a challenge for the system as well because instead of just going to one house, sending a social worker to one house to talk with the children to work on services, now I'm having to send that social worker out to three different houses 
warehouses to perform those services triple instead of just one single time. So it's really tough. And where we end up doing often is sticking sibling groups into what we call level one residential homes. So if you've heard of a place like Black Mountain Home or Boree Hill Home for Children, those are places kids may live in what they call a, a cottage. So they may live in a cottage with their siblings, but there's not a regular parent that stays there. It's staff people that are roaming in and out. And so that even though it's set up like a house, it's still not a family setting for them. And there's been a lot of changes with that as well. That was kind of our go-to to be able to keep kids together. They say can't be in a family setting, at least we'll have them together in a cottage. But the federal government in 2018 just enacted this new law called the Families First Prevention Act, which is a great act. It does a lot of things. It, it takes a lot of money and a lot of resources and puts it on the front end of working with a family so their kids never get to foster care. That's awesome. That's amazing. But in order to get the money to pay for those services, they took away all the payments for the level one uh, residential group homes. So now we're stuck in this, again, like another situation where we're having to split up these kids no matter what, because you can't afford to pay to uh, privately to have a kid put in, in a level one. And that home. was at the federal level. It's at the federal level, and it's taken a while to trickle down, but it has, and it's very costly for the county. For families that want to, or peep individuals that want to be involved, is there a lot of training that goes in? Is there a, a, a timeline from contact to then when you're eligible, what happens? So there is a pretty intensive training with Lutheran Services. It's a 40-hour course, and that covers our care model, which is called collaborative problem solving. And so that's a care model in terms of trying to collaborate in an age-appropriate way with the foster children that you bring into your home. And it also covers the issues that you're going to run into with the therapeutic level children that need more support. The licensing process itself can take anywhere from four to six months. And it's a very introspective process. It's going to bring up a lot of thought for the families in terms of experiences that these kids are going to have been through. And maybe some of those are same experiences that these families had as adolescents or as children. And you start to figure out what your strengths are in terms of issues that you may have experienced experience that now are going to give you the ability to help these children through similar issues. And you also realize what your weaknesses are, things that maybe you have never had experience with or things that you have had experience with that are triggering to you that you may not want to try to handle. Wow. That's a pretty intensive experience to go through. So you're going through your own sort of counseling in a sense. And I imagine too, that the challenges that kids are facing today and just the world that we're in are much more complex than maybe a generation ago. I imagine that some of the training has to take some of that into account. Absolutely. And I think it's important that they go through that sort of introspection before they take kids to their home. It gets them to a place where they're more prepared and they're not coming at this uninformed. It gets them to a place where they have really thought about what some of the trauma that the kids have been through, how that's going to impact them. And so once you've gone through the training, you are, I think, more prepared than you think you're going to be initially when you look into doing this. We don't just throw foster families in with no awareness. We've talked a lot about the challenges and the world they're in. What are the rewards? You both have talked about the people who've 
come into your lives through foster care when they were young and you adopted in some instances. Talk about the relationships you both have built and where they sit today with now with, as they are adults. You mentioned, Amy, that you adopted somebody when she was in, in kindergarten. She's now an adult. Talk about that relationship. You know, I'm a local, so the kids that I worked with when I was 20 years old have their own kids now. And so I'll often go to places like Target or a restaurant and see a kid there with their own child. And it's so nice to see, to talk to them and say, what are you doing now? And they'll say, oh, I'm living in an apartment over in South Asheville and I've been working for such and such company for three years. And I'm like... That's amazing. And I think about the times of when they were uh, getting caught at school doing drugs and had to go live in a mental health group home because nobody could control them because they felt like they were out of control. It's a rewarding experience to know that you've put in the time and the energy to help change someone's life for the better. Really, that's the greatest reward, I believe. Yeah. And Whitney, I imagine you have similar experiences. Absolutely. The first child that we worked with is 27 now, and he has been traveling, working at different resorts. And so he's gotten to see most of the continental U.S., and he just moved back to Asheville. So I've been able to spend some time with him in person again. And it's been really great to see him and see how much he's grown and changed over the years, how much he's matured. And I certainly can't take credit for all of that, but it's nice to know that I had an impact on him. If you value the Overlook's place in Asheville's media landscape, please consider joining dozens of others who are supporting the show through my Patreon crowdfunding page. Become a member for as little as $5 a month. Visit patreon.com slash the Overlook podcast. Our First Look newsletter gives you just a handful of daily headlines from around the local media landscape to get you on your morning. We also have a weekly newsletter devoted to all things The Overlook that hits you every Friday. Both are free and available at podavl.com newsletter. I want to thank my guests today, Amy Huntsman of Buncombe County Health and Human Services and Whitney Burton of the nonprofit Lutheran Services Carolina. I have links to both organizations in the show notes for this episode. Our conversation took place at the BB Theater in downtown Asheville, which is available to me due to the largesse of Susan and Giles Collard of Asheville Contemporary Dance Theater. The theme song for The Overlook, Maker's Song, comes to us courtesy of the Asheville duo The Resonant Rogues. The Overlook is a production of Podcast Asheville. New episodes come out every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on any social media channel at AVL Overlook. And I'll see you on the next episode of The Overlook with Matt Pikin. Hey everyone, Matt Pikin here from The Overlook, and I'll get back to my conversation in just a moment. But I'm asking you, the listener, yes, you, listening this very moment, is The Overlook making a difference in your connection to Asheville? Do you know more about what makes this city tick and where we're struggling? If you had to give up one cup of coffee every month to do your part to keep this show going, would you step up? If you answered yes to any of that, and I really hope you did, please join dozens of other listeners by supporting The Overlook with Matt Pikin through my Patreon campaign by giving just $5 a month. Give it higher levels and you'll earn free tickets to my live podcasting events. Your support means the world to me and helps keep this show free for anyone to hear. Go to patreon.com slash the overlook podcast.